What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this video I tell you all about Dividend Champions, Aristocrats, and Kings. So please do me a favor and take a moment right now to hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Also please share my videos with someone you know, as that's a great way you can support me, as well as be the person who helps change someone's financial life. Now most people are aware of the prestigious Dividend Kings, which are companies that have raised their dividend for at least 50 consecutive years, and I found 49 companies in North America that fit the bill. Dividend aristocrats are also well respected, and are companies that have raised their dividend for at least 25 consecutive years, but also have some other requirements. Number one, they need to be on the SP500, which means that they are large American companies. Number two, they must also have a float adjusted market cap of at least 3 billion, and number three, must have an average daily value traded of at least 5 million. There are also European dividend aristocrats that I won't be talking about today, but I did a video on them for those that are interested. Officially there are 66 dividend aristocrats, and that list is maintained by SP Global, and they update it every year. There actually were 67 until a moment ago, when VFC announced their latest dividend was a 41% decrease over the previous quarter's dividend, aka VFC just lost its dividend king and dividend aristocrat status. Sad panda. And then finally there are dividend champions, of which I identified 153 in North America, which are companies that have raised their dividend for at least 25 consecutive years, but don't have those aristocrat requirements like needing to be part of the SP500. So this champions list includes all the aristocrats and kings. Now why should you care if a company is a dividend champion, aristocrat, or king? Well, because a lot of people value a company that is able to be so consistent with both paying and increasing a dividend over multiple decades, which means through the pandemic crash, the 2008 financial crisis, and the dot-com crash and potentially beyond. That doesn't mean dividends are guaranteed, nor does it mean a company will keep doing it for the next 25 years. Beyond the VFC change I just mentioned, we also saw how last year that AT&T was removed from the aristocrat list due to its dividend cut with the WBD spinoff. Thus, never invest in a company solely because it's on one of those dividend lists, and regardless, paying an increasing dividend doesn't guarantee it to be a great investment. Like maybe they've been taking on debt for the last few years to cover their dividend payment, or maybe they're on the verge of cutting their dividends or whatever. Okay, and for this video I used two good sources of data to identify all the dividend champions. The first was from a website called Sure Dividend, which has a spreadsheet of 152 dividend champions in it, and the other was from a website called MoneySign, which has a spreadsheet they called the Dividend Radar, that has 130 dividend champions on it. When I compared those two spreadsheets, I found that Sure Dividend had 22 dividend champions that MoneySign didn't have, and MoneySign had one that Sure Dividend missed, and both were missing three tickers that I think should be champions, though two were in Canada, so maybe that's why they didn't include them. Regardless, both Sure Dividend and MoneySign update their spreadsheets, so I recommend you use one or both of theirs as I don't plan on maintaining mine. I've included links to both Sure Dividend and MoneySign in the description of this video, and both are worth bookmarking and perusing. Now an interesting historical tidbit I found was that the first Dividend Champion spreadsheet was maintained by a guy named Dave Fish, who used to post on the Motley Fool message boards in the mid-1990s. Dave unfortunately passed away five years ago, and then a fellow named Justin Law, a contributor from Seeking Alpha, started maintaining it, and that's the one on MoneySign.com, which was formerly called DripInvesting.org. Anyways, MoneySign updates their dividend champion lists on the first of each month, 
And they also have links to a Canadian dividend list of companies with five or more consecutive years of dividend increases, a European dividend champions list of the 40 highest dividend yielding Eurozone companies with increasing or stable dividends for at least 10 consecutive years, and a UK dividend champions list of UK companies that have increased or maintained their dividend for five or more calendar years in a row, amongst other links. Now, there are a variety of reasons why some lists have more champions listed than other lists, beyond being North American versus European companies or whatever. One common reason is because of how people treat companies that spin off or merge with other companies. Like, think about when Abbott spun off AbbVie in 2013. Before the split, Abbott had increased their dividend for 41 consecutive years and was paying a dividend of 51 cents per quarter per share for a total of about $2.04 per share per year. I say about because it depends on if I'm talking about the calendar year or if I'm talking about the go-forward 12 months of dividend payments from the time in question. Anyways, when the spinoff happened, Abbott shareholders got one share of AbbVie, as a special dividend, for each Abbott share they held. After the split, Abbott was paying about $0.64 cents per share per year, and AbbVie was paying $1.60 per share per year. Thus, Abbott shareholders went from effectively getting $2.04 per share per year in dividends from a single ticker to $2.24 per share per year across two tickers. And since 2013, each individual company's increased their dividend payout each year. So here we are about 10 years later, and I'm in the camp that says that both Abbott and AbbVie have increased their dividends for 51 consecutive years, making them both dividend kings, whereas some people say only Abbott should be counted as a king, and, and others say that neither should be called kings. The formal dividend aristocrat methodology says that for spin-offs occurring after January 1st of 2013, the yearly dividend increase history of the parent company is assigned to both the parent and spun-off company on the spin-off effective date. To determine annual dividend payments, the dividends of the parent and spun-off companies are combined until two full calendar year cycles of dividend payments are available for both post-spin-off companies. For valuation purposes, the combined dividend amount is adjusted by the spin-off ratio. Subsequent dividend comparisons are based on the annual dividend amounts of each respective company. Bottom line, spin-offs are an example of how different people might classify a stock as a champion or a risk-grad or king, while another might not. A merger is another example that can make things messy. Like when United Technologies spun off Carrier Global and Otis Worldwide, some people say that only United Technologies retained the streak and Carrier and Otis went to zero. And then when United Tech merged with Raytheon to form Raytheon Technologies, some people say that Raytheon Tech inherited UTX's 29 consecutive years, whereas the wiki says that Raytheon, Carrier Global, and Otis Worldwide were all removed from the formal dividend aristocrats list. Now, regardless if Raytheon has 29 consecutive years or if it started back at zero years, it still has been a great dividend company. So a takeaway for you is that while it helps for companies to be champions or aristocrats or kings, what really matters is that you understand the history behind a ticker so that you can effectively evaluate it. Anyways, I think that when J&J spins off Kenview, it will be kind of a similar situation to when Abbott spun off AbbVie, i.e. my guess is that Kenview will have a dividend and J&J will have a dividend, and the combined dividend amount, when factoring in the share ratios you end up with, will end up being the same or higher than J&J's is right now, and that S&P Global's aristocrat methodology will be what most people use to determine if J&J or Kenview are dividend kings. I don't have any specific details on what will actually happen with J&J's dividend, including I don't know for sure if Kenview will pay one, but I'm just guessing. Okay, so this is a modified copy of Sure Dividend Spreadsheet, sorted from highest number of consecutive years of dividend increases down to lowest, with a few tickers at the bottom of the list that weren't included in either Sure Dividend or MoneySign. Rows highlighted in green are stocks that Sure Dividend had, but MoneySign didn't, and rows in purple are stocks that neither Sure Dividend nor MoneySign had on their lists, 
and I can pretty much guarantee you that you'll hear some companies you've never heard of before. So here first are all the stocks in the champions list that have 60 or more consecutive years of dividend increases. I hit a few columns so what you can see is the ticker, the company name, the sector, the yield, the number of years of dividend increases, the one-year dividend growth, the five-year dividend CAGR, the market cap, the PE, the payout ratio, and its beta. I won't go over all the metrics as you can screenshot this if you want, but I'll go over the names for you. So in this case we see that American States Water has 68 consecutive years of dividend increases, followed by Dover Corp at 67, and Northwest Natural Holding at 67, and then Emerson Electric, Genuine Parts Company, and Procter & Gamble, which I'm long in, all at 66 years. Speaking of Procter & Gamble, here's a slide from a 2022 investor presentation they did where they highlight their dividend. They did a 5% dividend increase in 2022, and as I just said, they have 66 consecutive years of dividend increases, and they've been paying dividends for 132 years. 132 freaking years. And then they show how they've been increasing their dividend over the past 10 years or so, from $2.14 per share in fiscal year 2012 to $3.52 when they did that slide, and in fact this year they're at $3.65 per share per year. Procter & Gamble is the 13th largest position for me of the 26 I have, and I have 770 shares of it that yield $2,812.96 a year. I love my Procter & Gamble position and use tons of their products. Anyways, back to the list, and next we have 3M, Cincinnati Financial, Colgate Palmolive, which I'm long in, and J&J that I'm long in. Here's an investor slide that J&J put out recently, talking about some of their priorities being competitive dividends and share repurchases, and how they paid out $3 billion in dividends to shareholders at that point in 2022. I always love it when management affirms the importance of returning cash to their shareholders in the form of dividends and share buybacks. After J&J, we have Coca-Cola that I'm long in, then Lancaster Colony, and finally Lowe's rounding out the companies with 60 plus consecutive years of dividend increases. Impressive. Now I'll quickly go over other champions that have 25 plus years on the list, going in reverse order from most to least, and then I'll show you some data about how aristocrats and kings and such have performed as compared to the SP500. So continuing on in the list we have Nordson, Farmers and Merchants Bank Corps, Illinois Toolworks, Hormel Foods, ABM Industries, Federal Realty Investment Trust, Steppen Company, SJW Group, Stanley Black & Decker, California Water Service Group, Target, Tootsie Roll Industries, and Commerce Bank shares, all at 53 or more consecutive years of dividend increases. Then we have HB Fuller and Altria, which I'm long in. Here's a slide Altria released a few days ago, talking about the significant amount of cash they returned to shareholders. So in fiscal year 2021, they did $1.7 billion in share repurchases, and then in fiscal year 2022, they increased that to $1.8 billion of share repurchases. They also returned $6.4 billion of dividends to shareholders in fiscal year 2021, and then increased that to $6.6 billion in 2022. A nice thing about share buybacks beyond increasing your share ownership and acting as tailwinds to drive up the stock price is that the more buybacks they do, the more sustainable the dividend becomes because they have to pay out less shares. So if a company does a share buyback of 4% of their outstanding shares, I think to myself that it also equals a free 4% dividend hike they could do without impacting anything. Okay, and after Altria, we have Black Hills Core, MSA Safety, National Fuel Gas, Cisco, Universal, Abvi, that I'm long in, Beckton Dickinson, Computer Services, WW Granger, and Kimberly Clark, that I'm long in, and we're still over 50 consecutive years. Then we have Leggett and Platt, that I'm long in, then PPG Industries, Tenant Company, Gorman Rupp, Middlesex Water, Nucor, and PepsiCo, that I'm long in. This morning when I woke up, I found that Pepsi announced a 10% dividend hike effective in June. I have 768 shares of Pepsi, 
and it's my eighth largest position. So that hike increases my annual dividend income from $3,532 a year to $3,886, an increase of $354 a year. As someone living on dividends, I really appreciate hikes like that. Then we have S&P Global, RPM International, Walmart, Archer Daniels Midland, Automatic Data Processing, and Consolidated Edison, all at 48 or more consecutive years. Then we have Telephone and Data Systems, United Bank Shares, and McDonald's, which I'm long in. Here's a slide from a McDonald's deck where they call out the three main priorities for their money. Number one, invest in the business to continue growing it. Number two, pay the dividend. And number three, pay down debt. Awesome sauce. And to this day, I still get excited when we eat at McDonald's. It's amazing when you love the products your companies make. After them, we see RLI Corp, Walgreens Boots Alliance, Carlisle Companies, Clorox, First of Long Island Corp, Medtronic, MGE Energy, Pentair, Sherwin-Williams, and Franklin Resources, all at 43 or more years. Then we have Community Trust Bank Corp, Aflac, Air Products and Chemicals, Old Republic International, Sintus, Sonico Products, and ExxonMobil, which I'm long in. Here's a slide ExxonMobil recently released, where their management estimates that their earnings and cash flow is expected to double by 2027. Are you kidding me? I thought oil was dead. Well, if this is dead, I'll take it. After Exxon, we see Atmos Energy, Brown Foreman Corp, Class B, Brady Corp, NACO Industries, Universal Health Realty Income Trust, and Chevron, which I'm long in. And all those are at 36 or more consecutive years. Okay, halfway done, and then I'll share some info on how aristocrats and kings and such have performed as compared to the overall market. Continuing on, next we have Tompkins Financial Corp, T. Rowe Price, Cardinal Health, Eagle Financial Services, McCormick & Company, First Source, UGI, First Financial, National Retail Properties, Erie Indemnity, Jack Henry & Associates, MDU Resources Group, and SEI Investments, all at 32 or more consecutive years. Next up is Calvin B. Taylor Bank Shares, Ecolab, Franklin Electric, First Farmers Financial, General Dynamics, McGrath Rent Corp, Norwood Financial Corp, UMB Financial Corp, Essential Utilities, Badger Meter, Community Bank Systems, Chesapeake Financial Shares, and Roper Technologies, all at 30 or more consecutive years. Take a moment to think how amazing that is. I mean, Roper Technologies, a company that designs and develops software for campuses, laboratories, transportation management, and a slew of other areas, has paid out and been increasing their dividend every year for 30 years, which is more than a bunch of you have been alive. Then we have West Pharmaceutical Services, A.O. Smith, Bank First, Brown & Brown, and Caterpillar, which I'm long in. Here's a slide from a deck Caterpillar just put out. It mentions $6.7 billion returned to shareholders in 2022, and it calls out their dividend aristocrats that have paid a dividend for 29 consecutive years. I love seeing management mention those things, as they realize their shareholders care about that. After Caterpillar, we see Chubb, Cullen Frost Bankers, Enterprise Bank Corp, Entergy Corp, Lindy, Matthews International, PSB Holdings, and Southside Bank Shares, all at 29 or more consecutive years. Okay, almost done. Next, we have Thomson Reuters, West America Bank Corp., John Wiley & Sons Class A, Aptar Group, Canadian National Railway, Polaris, Raytheon Tech, though like I was previously saying, some people don't count Raytheon as having that many consecutive years, but some people do. And then we see Stryker, Albemarle, Andersons, Aero Financial, Artesian Resources, and Church and & Dwight, all at 27 or more consecutive years. Next we have Enbridge, 
Essex Property Trust, Expeditors International of Washington, IBM, Lincoln Electric Holdings, Nextera Energy, Northeast Indiana Bank Corp, Bank OZK, Renaissance Sear Holdings, Donaldson Company, Graco, New Jersey Resources, and Realty Income, which I'm long in, all at 26 or more consecutive years. Here is a recent slide from Realty Income's management team that is interesting to look at. They've had a 14.4% annualized return since they went public in 1994. That's amazing. They also have had a very low 0.5 beta since IPOing, which is awesome to have both high returns and low volatility. They called out that they've increased their dividend 4.4% per year on average since 1994, and they are a member of the dividend aristocrat group. They also call out how their position for ongoing growth in the worldwide triple net lease space. Very nice. Finally, we end with James Smucker, C.H. Robinson Worldwide, Enterprise Products Partners, Eversource Energy, York Water, all at 25 or more years, and then the three stocks which I didn't see on either list were Amcor at 27 years, Fortison Canada at 49 years, and Canadian Utilities at 50 years. And WP Carry should hit 25 years this year, and People's United Financials was removed from the aristocrat list when its merger with M&T Bank was finalized in 2022. Okay, now let's look at how champions, aristocrats, and kings have performed as compared to the market. A Seeking Alpha contributor named The Part-Time Investor did a bunch of back tests and found that from 2007 to 2019, dividend champions returned 10.18% per year as compared to 8.29% for the SP500. What he modeled was someone who bought all the stocks in the dividend champions list and then bought new ones as they got added into the list and sold them if they were removed from the list. So dividend champions outperforming the SP500 by 2% per year is quite a lot. I mean, take a look at this compound interest calculator. Let's pretend we invest $10,000 and we got an 8.29% annualized return for 25 years. We would end at a portfolio worth 73 grand. But if we instead got 10.18% annualized return, we would end at a portfolio worth 113 grand. That's over 50% more, so you can see how much an additional 2% annualized return does over the long term. Now, that Seeking Alpha guy also did a test of buying all 136 stocks that were champions in 2007 and then kept holding them even if one got removed from the list, and doing that yielded an 8.49% return. So let me restate that. If he invested only in stocks that were on the list and sold out of any that got removed from the list, he had a 10.18% annualized return. But if he stayed invested in the stocks that were once on the list but got removed, then his annualized return fell down to 8.49%, which is still above how the SP500 performed. Motley Fool ran a comparison from 1991 through 2016 and found that dividend aristocrats materially outperformed the SP500, though in recent years the aristocrats as a group have underperformed. They also looked from 2003 to 2021 and found that the dividend aristocrat index outperformed the SP500 by nearly one percentage point on an annualized basis. They said that the dividend aristocrat index did underperform in the tech mania years of 2019 to 2021. This was a period in the market where growth at any cost was valued at extreme valuations and markets were largely driven by fear of missing out and momentum investing. In this type of environment, I'm not surprised slower growing, profitable, more mature, dividend paying companies would underperform. The dividend aristocrat index slightly underperformed in the period coming out of the dot-com crash from 2003 to 2007. But they slightly outperformed coming out of the global financial crisis driven market crash as seen in the period from 2009 to 2017. So that's a wash. There have been only two negative total return years, 2008 and 2018, in the SP500 index in the past 19 years, and the dividend aristocrat index outperformed meaningfully in both of them. Simply Safe Dividends evaluated dividend kings from 1991 through 2017 and found that they had an annualized return of 13.8% as compared to 10.2% for the SP500. 
In their test, they reinvested dividends, but they didn't buy or sell stock to rebalance. The other thing the study showed was that investing in dividend kings resulted in lower volatility. A lower volatility means the value of an investor's portfolio will fluctuate less. Specifically, the Dividend King's portfolio had an annual volatility of 12.5%, as opposed to the SP500 index portfolio, which had a 17.3% annual volatility. It doesn't mean that the Dividend King's portfolio never suffered a correction, but over time, it had lower highs and higher lows as well. For example, in 2008, an absolutely brutal year for the market, the Dividend King's portfolio returned a negative 14%, while the SP500's total return was down 37%. One of the reasons for this is that Dividend Kings usually possess defensive characteristics that allow them to outperform in bear markets. And you saw a similar thing happen to my dividend portfolio. I recently did a video called, How Did My Dividend Portfolio Do in 2022? where I showed you my portfolio results in Fidelity and how I was basically flat for that year, even though the SP500 fell around 20%. That was both because I have a lot of low beta defensive dividend stocks that tend to hold up better when times are tough, combined with the fact that oil did so well, and so my ExxonMobil and Chevron dividend aristocrats positions helped me out. So a TLDR from all that performance data is that generally speaking, the longer a company has been paying and increasing their dividend, the better their overall performance tends to be. And again, there are never any guarantees with investing, so building a good diverse portfolio can help you from any single position wrecking you or whatever. Invest knowing that sometimes the rug will be pulled out from underneath you, but also know that history shows us that good companies tend to trend up over time and that you might go sideways for decades, which is actually great for dividend investors. And with that, I'd like to shout out my newest Patreon aristocrats who've signed up since my last video. So thank yous go out to Ghost No Polly, Hale, Jazz Freedom, Sukshi732, and I'd like to thank Reed K, who signed up for an entire year so he gets a 10% discount. And I'd like to thank Brett H, who also signed up for an entire year, getting that 10% discount. And finally, I'd like to thank Drew N, who also signed up for an entire year, getting the 10% discount. Aristocrats gain access to my dividend portfolio tracker spreadsheet, which I use in lots of my videos, and they get special access to various private channels on my Discord, including one which lets you watch my videos before I release them publicly on YouTube, as well as lets you vote on which thumbnails I should use, and of course you get more direct access to me. I also add them to my scrolling news ticker if I have space on it. Finally, I urge everyone to join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of dividend investors on it from around the world. Regardless of what you do, please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.